We have already read this morning uh, Matthew's account and Mark's account of the transfiguration. For good measure, we will also read Luke's account. This is from Luke uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, with Moses, we ask you, show us your glory. May we see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in seeing his glory, see your glory as well. May we see Jesus and behold him face to face. For in seeing the face of Christ, we know we see your face as well. O Father, do all of this by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the glory cloud of the Spirit descend upon us this day even now. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, which is celebrated as Transfiguration Sunday in a lot of Protestant churches. The season of Epiphany uh, begins with Jesus' baptism, and it ends with Jesus' transfiguration. Now, as I said in the announcements, Epiphany will come out for an encore on Tuesday night, uh, our Shrove Tuesday celebration. But this is the last Sunday in Epiphany. So Epiphany starts with Jesus' baptism, and it ends with Jesus' transfiguration. And so they sort of act as bookends on the season of Epiphany. And that makes sense because Jesus' baptism and Jesus' transfiguration actually have a lot in common. In Luke's account, Jesus is praying at his baptism, and in Luke's account, he's praying at his transfiguration. If Jesus' baptism initiates the first stage of his ministry, the transfiguration initiates the second stage of his ministry, the first stage having to do with his messiahship, revealing him as messiah, the second stage having to do with the cross, pointing towards the cross. He will suffer. Before his baptism, John confesses that Jesus is the messiah. Right before his transfiguration, Peter confesses that Jesus is the messiah. After his baptism, Jesus fights Satan in the wilderness. After his transfiguration, Jesus fights a demon, driving a demon out of a child he's been tormenting. At his baptism, the spirit descends in the form of a dove. At his transfiguration, the spirit descends in the form of the glory cloud. At his baptism, the father speaks, This is my beloved son in whom I delight. 
at the transfiguration, the Father speaks again, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. So clearly, the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus belong together. But having said that, the transfiguration does not get nearly the attention it deserves. There are not a lot of famous transfiguration hymns. You might have enjoyed the hymns we sung this morning, or perhaps not, but they're not all that well-known. There's just not a lot of well-known transfiguration hymnody. Uh, There are no traditions or customs that go with Transfiguration Sunday to reinforce the meaning of the day. Uh, As far as I know, there are no big Transfiguration parties or feasts or celebrations taking place later today. If you're having one, invite me. I'd love to come, but I don't know of any. It's an underrated event. It's an underappreciated event in the Scriptures. And perhaps that's because the Transfiguration is an event that seems out of place. It seems out of sequence. It seems to interrupt the flow and progression of the narrative as it's unfolding in each of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we have the transfiguration. It seems to interrupt things. It seems to spring out of nowhere and then just kind of disappear and we wonder what to do with it. And it seems out of place, out of sequence, out of order. It's kind of like a baseball team that brings in its ace relief pitcher in the fifth inning instead of the ninth inning. And you think, isn't this out of place? Why is this happening now? Shouldn't it be happening later? That's kind of how the transfiguration seems. It seems like it's something that should come at the end as a culmination and not in the middle as an interruption. But actually, if we look at the event more closely, if we look at it more carefully, we can see why it's here. Why it happens in the middle of Jesus' ministry that is part of a design that makes sense. Uh, Before, you may have heard me compare the transfiguration to a movie trailer. You know, trailers are supposed to show us what's coming. They are literally a preview of coming attractions. And that's kind of what the transfiguration is, is. It is a prophetic event. It confirms the prophetic word. But it also prophesies of what is to come. It's a sneak preview. It's a glimpse of what is ahead. And thus it does a couple of things for the disciples. It provides the disciples with an interpretive lens for what is to come so they can rightly understand coming events, particularly the cross. So the cross will not throw them off. They, they won't give up hope on Jesus being the Messiah when he's crucified. Now they do fail in that moment, but the transfiguration should have given them a way of interpreting the cross that would have allowed them to remain faithful even when everything they had hoped for seems seemed to be falling apart. But more than that, the transfiguration is a guarantee of what is to come. It's proof God will do all he has promised. It confirms the prophetic word. Now, if we go up on the mountain with Jesus, so to speak, we can get a panoramic view. We can can get a, a, a bird's eye view, in a sense, of the whole story of Scripture, the whole sweep of history from beginning to end. If we go up on the mountain with Jesus, we can get a big picture view of things through the transfiguration. The event of Jesus' transfiguration gives us a mountaintop view of everything God is doing. And if we look carefully at the way these stories are given to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can see how the transfiguration is not out of place, 
It actually fits perfectly in the story and it's connected to everything else in Scripture and indeed everything else in our lives. Everything in your life connects to the transfiguration in one way or another. Maybe the best place to start with understanding the transfiguration is back in the book of Exodus. Uh, If you go back to the book of Exodus, what do we find? The Israelites have been redeemed out of slavery. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt through the plagues and the Passover. And now God has sent his angel to lead them. And we find that this angel of the Lord is mysteriously identified with God and yet also distinguished from him. And this angel leads them. They're brought to Mount Sinai. And there uh, Moses seems to interact with the angel of the Lord at the foot of the mountain. When he goes up on the mountain, uh, he seems to interact with God the Father. And he goes up on the mountain and he comes down with God's law. And he also goes up on the mountain and gets plans for the tabernacle and comes down that they might build the tabernacle, which will be a kind of portable Mount Sinai. And then it comes time to depart from Mount Sinai. God commands them to leave the mountain there to begin their journey towards the promised land. And the hope, of course, is that God will go with them. Specifically, God's angel, the angel of the Lord, who, again, seems to be God's son, appearing in pre-incarnate form, that this angel of the Lord will go with them. But because Israel has fallen into sin, while Moses was up on the mountain, the Israelites have fallen into sin. They've fallen into idolatry with a golden calf. Whether or not God will go with them is now in question. While Moses was away, the Israelites decided to play. They played with an idol. And so what will happen? In Exodus 23, in Exodus 33, God says, I will send my angel before you. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. God is putting distance between himself and the Israelites because of their sin. And Moses is not satisfied with that. He knows that if the Lord does not go with them, they have no hope. In effect, Moses says to the Lord, give me your presence or give me death. There's no other way. Moses has spoken to God face to face. He knows God's presence is their only hope. And for Moses' sake, God agrees. Moses at one point even even offers himself. He says, even take my life if you can spare theirs. He offers himself to make atonement for the people. But God's not going to do that. Instead, God, out of grace and out of mercy, agrees to go with the people because Moses has interceded for them. Exodus 33, 14 God says, my presence or my face will go with you. And now we know that God's presence or God's face in this way is the angel of God, the angel of the Lord. It's his son. It's some kind of pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. And then Moses gets especially bold in verse 18 and he asks, show me your glory. This is the audacious request of Moses. Now, does Moses get his prayer answered. Does God show Moses his glory? Well, yes and no. The Lord says he will not show Moses his face because no one can see God's face and live. That's in verse 20. 
But the Lord goes on in verses 22 and 23 to say that he will veil Moses, as it were. He will hide Moses in the cleft of a rock, and God's backside will pass before Moses. And God will make his goodness and compassion known to Moses. He will proclaim his name to Moses. And his name, we find, is dripping with grace and mercy. You go on in Exodus 34 and you see that, how God is abounding in grace and mercy. And he's slow to anger. He's a long-suffering God. This is how God self-describes. This is how God self-identifies as the God of grace and mercy. The Father is making his goodness known to Moses in the Son, the one who bears his name and who is his glory. And Moses seems to understand this because in the next chapter, in chapter 34, verse 9, he prays, O Lord, let my Lord go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity. Moses prays, Lord, let my Lord go with us. In other words, he's praying. I don't think he fully understood this, but now we can, we can fill it in this way. We can unpack it this way. Lord, my Father, let my Lord, the Son, go among us as the mediator of your grace. It's really Trinitarian. Moses has learned to have the Son is to have the Father. The Son mediates between the Father and sinners. So in the Son, sin is forgiven by the Father. And in the Son, sinners can experience the glory of the Father. Moses has learned to see the Son is to see the Father. No man can see the Father's face and live, but the Son is the face of the Father revealed to us. There's really no better prayer if you want to know God. There's really no better prayer than the one Moses offered. Lord, show me your glory. And what kind of answer does Moses get? He gets a Trinitarian answer. The Father showing him the Son. The prayer of Moses was partially answered on Mount Sinai. The glory of God did pass before Moses. But Moses was hidden in a rock. It's as if he was veiled. And it was the backside of God's glory that passed by Moses, not his front side, not his face. And so Moses gets only a partial answer to his prayer. But a more full, more complete answer to that prayer is given on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses prayed to the Father, show me your glory. In the Transfiguration, the Father answers by revealing the glory of his Son. On Mount Sinai, Moses got a preview of the preview. But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he got to see the preview itself as Jesus, in the midst of his earthly ministry, reveals his glory as he is transfigured and his true glory shines through. When God the Father glorifies God the Son on the mountain, when he shows off his glory in his Son, what do we see? We see really an answer to Moses' prayer. But more than that, we see our whole salvation. We see God's purposes for us and for all of history revealed. Let's look at these accounts we've read from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Let's consider what they teach us. What does the transfiguration show us about God, about the glory of God, about the Father and the Son, and about our salvation? Well, first we need to see, in, in terms of the way the Gospels present this event, it's really a turning point in the Gospel. It's a pivot. 
Everything in the Gospels to this point has been building to this moment. Jesus has been revealing who he is as God's Messiah. And Peter has just confessed correctly that Jesus is the Messiah. But as soon as Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus shocks his disciples by explaining that his Messiahship means he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die on a cross. Being Messiah includes a vocation to suffer. To go to Jerusalem and suffer. And from the transfiguration on, Jesus pivots towards Jerusalem. He starts to journey towards Jerusalem. He sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Luke tells us that. He's determined now. He sets his face towards Jerusalem and begins to head that direction, making a beeline to the cross. So the transfiguration and the cross are somehow connected. How so? The transfiguration shows us that Jesus' death, while it looks shameful and terrible, the transfiguration shows us Jesus' death is truly glorious. Jesus is not the glorious Messiah in spite of His suffering, but rather Jesus is the glorious Messiah because of His suffering and through His suffering and on account of His suffering and by means of His suffering. This is what the disciples could not fathom at this point. Messiahship or kingship and the cross go together. Glory and suffering go together. Glory comes through suffering. Glory comes through sacrifice. The true glory of God will be revealed on the cross through the sacrificial love of Jesus. Glory and suffering are two sides of the same coin. The words spoken by the Father at the transfiguration confirm this. That this is really what it means. What does the Father say about the Son in the transfiguration? He calls Jesus the beloved Son. But you know who else is called beloved Son in Scripture? You know where else that term is used? A Father speaking of His Son? Or, 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 or the Son of a Father being spoken of as the beloved Son? That language is used of Isaac. That language is used of Isaac specifically when God tells Abraham to go sacrifice him. If Jesus is the beloved son of the father, who is he? He is the new Isaac, whom the true father will not spare, but instead will offer up as a sacrifice for us all for our sins. As he is shining with his radiant glory, he's identified as the one who will be sacrificed. The one who will give himself in suffering, in sacrificial love on the cross. Not only that, as the Father speaks over the Son in the transfiguration, as Jesus glows and radiates with this splendid and majestic light, the Father also identifies him as the chosen one. This is my chosen one. That language of chosen one recalls Isaiah 42. In fact, it recalls all of Isaiah's so-called servant songs. It identifies Jesus as the servant of the Lord, Isaiah foretold. Indeed, the suffering servant of the Lord, by whose stripes we are healed, the one who will be pierced for our, transfig for our transgressions. 
the transfiguration and the cross go together. The words the Father speaks over the Son here show us that. Even as Jesus is shining with this glory, the Father is speaking of Him, describing Him as the one who will be crucified, the one who will be slain and sacrificed. And indeed, once we see that, we can make other connections between the transfiguration and the cross. In the transfiguration, Jesus is flanked by two men, Moses and Elijah. At his cross, he will be flanked by two men as well, two thieves, one to the left and one to the right. The head that shines here with glory will be sped upon and will wear a crown of thorns there. But it's the same head that shines with glory, the same face that shines with glory that will be shamed and humiliated. The garments that shine with glory here will be stripped off him there. The one who is transfigured will be disfigured. It may seem like there are no two events that could be further apart than the transfiguration on the mountain and the disfiguration of the cross. But actually, bringing them together is the whole point of the event. In each Gospel, again, the transfiguration happens right after He has foretold His suffering on the cross. The suffering He will endure. The disciples don't yet get it. They can't yet see how suffering and glory go together. How sacrifice and glory fit together. But that's the conclusion they must come to. The transfiguration and the cross overlay one another. You've got to align them so that when you look at the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration, you see the cross right behind it. Or when you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, you see Him shining with that transfigured light, that transfigured glory. Because they belong together. They've got to be aligned. They can't be separated. Separating them was the whole mistake of the disciples at this point. We've got to see how they go together. Jesus is going to redefine Messiahship. He's going to redefine glory and redefine victory for the disciples, for us. All in terms of sacrificial love. But in addition, the transfiguration heralds a new exodus. We've already seen some connections between what happens in the book of Exodus and what happens here, Mount Sinai and the Holy Mount of Transfiguration. But there's much more. In fact, it's interesting in Luke's account, uh, of the transfiguration, Jesus is discussing with Moses and Elijah the exodus. Some of your translations may say his departure or his decease, but it's literally the word for exodus. The exodus he will accomplish in Jerusalem. So the transfiguration and the exodus go together. The transfiguration doesn't happen on Mount Sinai, literally, but it is a mountain. And because it's a mountain, we can connect it with Mount Sinai. There are a lot of echoes and allusions to what happened on Mount Sinai in Moses' day here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Obviously, glory was revealed on Sinai, and glory is revealed here. Moses, in some way, saw God face to face at Sinai. Here, God reveals his glory. They see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's a face-to-face -face encounter with the glory of God. In Exodus 24, Moses takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu up on the mountain. And they saw a theophany, some kind of divine appearance. Here, Jesus takes three men, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain. And they too experience a theophany. It's just like what Moses did. He takes three men, two of whom are brothers. 
Same thing here. What's interesting is that when Moses spent time with the Lord, his face would start to reflect the glory of God. And the Israelites, sinners that they were, couldn't even bear to see the reflected glory of God in the face of Moses. And so Moses has to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't bear to look at him. This glory that Jesus shines with, that Jesus reveals, is not a reflection. It is his own glory face. The glory face of God unveiled momentarily for the disciples to see him as he is. They get to see what Moses saw, but in an even greater way. And Jesus is not just reflecting God's glory. He is God. He is God's glory. And the transfiguration accounts all stress this. They all stress that the face of Jesus shines. That in seeing the face of Jesus, it's as if they were seeing God's glory face to face. His face shined like the sun. Jesus is God's glory face. In looking upon the face of Jesus, they were seeing God's glory face to face. Indeed, He's the one Moses could see only in a veiled way in the book of Exodus. No one has seen God at any time. Even Moses only saw the veiled face of God. But now in Jesus, we behold the glory of God face to face. Moses could only see the backside of God. In Jesus, we see God truly. We see God's front side. We see God's glory face to face. That's really the point here. What Moses only got to experience in a limited way, now the disciples are seeing in a much greater, much fuller way. See, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is showing an even greater exodus, an even greater glory, an even greater redemption is about to be revealed. These things are about to be accomplished. Here's another way of getting at the connections between Exodus and, and, and the Transfiguration. In Exodus, the law came through Moses given on tablets of stone. He went up on the mountain and came down with the law and then the law was read and the people heard it and the people were to obey it. But in the transfiguration, you get something even greater. The Father doesn't give a new law here. He gives His Son. He speaks to His Son. If there's a law in the Father's voice, it's this. The Father says of the Son, Hear Him. In other words, His teaching His Word will fulfill and surpass the Law and the Prophets. Moses and Elijah are there to represent the Law and the Prophets. And the Father doesn't say, hear Moses and hear Elijah. No, it's hear Jesus. Hear Him. Because Moses and Elijah, the Law and the Prophets, point to Jesus and they find their fulfillment and their true meaning in Jesus. And so the Father says of the Son, hear Him. They don't get the Word of God in tablets of stone on that mountain. They get the Word of God in Jesus Himself. Jesus is not the Word on stone. He is the Word made flesh, the Word incarnate, the Word embodied in human form. He is a walking, talking Word from God. He is what God wants to say to us. He is the very expression of God's heart, the very revelation of God's glory. What does God have to say to us? Hear Him. Hear Jesus. That's what God is saying. Jesus is the Word above all other words. He is the Word of words. The Word made glorious. 
He is the Word, and the Father says, Hear Him. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said God would send a new prophet, a prophet who would be superior even to Moses. Moses says He is the prophet the people must hear. When the Father says of Jesus, hear Him, He is identifying Jesus as that greater prophet of Deuteronomy 18. And Jesus is not just one who brings a message from God. He is God's message. He is a message from God. He is God's ultimate message because He is God Himself in human form. But further, there's another Exodus connection we can make here. A new Exodus means a new priesthood as well. So Jesus is not just the prophet God promised. He's also a new priest, founding a new priesthood. And so notice that this event takes place, uh, Mark tells us, after the sixth day. I think Matthew also tells us that. After the sixth day, which means on the seventh day. Now, under the law, the priests underwent a seven-day ordination ritual. You can read about this in Exodus 28 and Leviticus 8. A seven-day ordination ritual culminating with the priests being clothed in garments of glory and beauty. These are the high priestly garments. Well, in the transfiguration, what happens to Jesus? This is on the seventh day and His garments even shine with glory and beauty. It's a sign. This is your true priest. God is saying to the disciples, this is your true priest. A new and better priest is here. Jesus will be a great high priest over the house of God. He will be the true high priest who will effectively take away the sins of His people. His blood will do what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. What those priests could not accomplish at the tabernacle and the temple, Jesus will do on the altar of the cross, taking away the sins of the people forever. And now He continues His priestly ministry, ever living to make intercession for us and bringing us into the most holy place where He is so we can come before the very throne of grace and receive the help that we need in times of distress. He is our high priest, the one wearing garments of glory and beauty. And then we're told too, this is an interesting little tidbit, Peter wanted to build tabernacles, little houses for Jesus and the other visitors who have shown up, Moses and Elijah, again, who represent the law and the prophets, but who are also both associated with the Exodus pattern and with Exodus events in their own ministry. Peter wants to build tabernacles for all of them. Now, Peter's mistake, and we're told Peter did this because he was afraid, he didn't know what he was talking about, but his suggestion was not crazy, not as crazy as it might seem. Peter, he sees the, the, the pieces of the puzzle, he just can't put them together in the right way. Peter knows if we're on a mountain and glory is descending, maybe we should do something with a tabernacle. After all, Moses got the plans for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, and the tabernacle itself was a kind of portable Mount Sinai. And the glory of God moved into the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. And certainly, Peter wants Moses and Elijah to stay with them. So maybe we build houses for them, they'll stay. Peter makes a mistake, but it's a logical mistake. He's putting several things together, just not quite in the right Way. He doesn't quite understand how the pieces fit together. There is a house to build. 
There is a tabernacle or a temple to build. But what is that house? What is that tabernacle? It's not something they can build on that mountain where Jesus is being transfigured. The house that must be built is the church. And it's interesting, Jesus has taken Peter, James, and John with him. And in fact, there, there are four of them. These will be the four cornerstones of the church with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In fact, it's interesting, in Matthew's account, you get, we read the transfiguration in Matthew 17. You go back to Matthew 16, right before the transfiguration, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by saying, yes, and on you, Peter, I will build my church. Peter's name means rock. Jesus says he will build his church on the rock of Peter and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So what do you have here? Jesus is saying he will build, that's an architectural term, a construction term, Jesus will build his church. That's a term that describes an assembly of people. And so the church will be the true tabernacle, the true construction project, the true temple. The church will be the house of God, the tabernacle of God. The people are the building. What is Jesus building? He's building a community that will serve as a tabernacle or a temple for God. It's interesting too, right? As Peter makes this suggestion about building three tabernacles, Moses and Elijah disappear. They're not going to get their own tabernacles. There will only be one tabernacle, only one house for God. And that will be the house Jesus builds, the tabernacle Jesus builds. And what will he use as his building materials? He'll use us. We will be the living stones he assembles into this grand house for God. So the glory of God, that same glory that shined in Jesus, that glory of God will come to dwell in the church. The church will be the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, the house of God. The church will be overshadowed with and filled with the glorious presence of God. And that's something you see then unpacked, referred to, and, 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 and practically applied again and again in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, that's really where we need to take this. I hope all of this is interesting to you to see how the transfiguration connects with all of these other things in Scripture, all these other events and persons and themes in Scripture how the transfiguration really is the perfect preview of what is to come. It's really a key that unlocks multiple aspects of the gospel for us. It shows us what it means for Jesus to accomplish the new exodus and to build the true tabernacle. It shows us how Jesus fulfills and surpasses the word of Moses and Elijah. The transfiguration shows us that Jesus is God's glory. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We know God face to face by looking to Jesus. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. He is the unveiled God. He is God's glorious face. The countenance of God shining upon us. But what, what you know, it, 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 it's an interesting historical event. What does it mean for us today? If you were to take the transfiguration and say, okay, that's interesting that that happened way back then. How does it apply to my life today? I mean, it's one thing to see how it fits into the gospel story and how it connects with all of these themes in Scripture. But what does it mean for us right now? If we want to be a transfiguration people, 
who live out this truth. What does that mean? Well, really briefly, let me give you a few things to consider here. Ways to use the transfiguration in your life. Ways the transfiguration shapes our mission and our purpose. What we do with our lives. It's interesting, you know, Moses and Elijah showed up there on the mountain with Jesus. What's interesting, you know, Moses and Elijah are a lot alike. But one thing they have in common is each one of them had successors. Each one of them had a successor who went on to do even greater things than their predecessor. And so Moses is followed by Joshua, who goes on to conquer the land of promise. Moses didn't get to enter the land. Joshua enters the land and conquers even giants in the land. Elijah is followed by Elisha, who goes on to do even greater miracles. Elijah did great miracles, but everything Elijah did, Elisha doubles. Does even greater miracles. Well, then does Jesus have a successor? He must have a successor if he's linked with Moses and Elijah in this way. But who is his successor? Is his successor the Holy Spirit? After all, that seems to to fit, right? After Jesus, the Holy Spirit succeeds. The Holy Spirit comes as his successor, right? Pentecost follows Good Friday and Easter and Ascension. Jesus leaves so the Spirit can come. Jesus goes up and the Spirit comes down. The Spirit would seem to be the successor of Jesus. But that's not the only way to answer that question. We could also say the church is the successor of Jesus. The church is, after all, called the body of Jesus, the bride of Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 that those who believe in him will go on to do even greater works than he did. And that's what you see as the story of the church is told. The very first sermon Peter preached in the book of Acts converted 3,000 people. Jesus never preached a sermon that converted 3,000 people. The church converted 3,000 people there on the day of Pentecost and the church has gone on to convert whole countries and cultures, to convert and transform whole people groups. Things Jesus never did during His earthly ministry. So who is Jesus' successor? Is it the Spirit or is it the church? Well, let's put those answers together. The successor of Jesus is the Spirit-filled church. And the Spirit-filled church goes on to do greater things than even Jesus accomplished in His earthly life. If Jesus accomplished the exodus, then His Spirit-filled successor, the church, must carry out the conquest. We must go conquer the promised land, the promised land of the whole earth, which we do by bringing the good news to the nations, subduing the nations to the gracious reign of Jesus by proclaiming His gospel. That's our mission. You want to ask, how does the transfiguration apply today? There's one way of looking at it. We come after Jesus, even as Moses and Elijah had those who came after them. We come after Jesus to carry on His work and His mission in the world. We go on to do even greater things. But here's another way the transfiguration applies to us today. The transfiguration gives us assurance. The transfiguration serves as a guarantee of all God has promised. That's really how Peter uses it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter is there addressing Christians who are starting to doubt 
whether or not God's promises for the future will be fulfilled? And how does Peter alleviate those doubts? He points back to the transfiguration. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And we heard the voice with our own ears, the voice of the Father from heaven on the holy mountain. And so Peter says, the prophetic word has been confirmed. If Jesus was glorified as king on the mountain, then you can be assured all the kingdom promises will come to pass. The transfiguration is a past event that guarantees this glorious future God has promised. The transfiguration is a guarantee of Christ's future coming in power and glory. Now for the apostles in the first century context, that included assurance that Jesus would come in judgment on Jerusalem within that generation as he, is, as he had foretold. That's probably what they're starting to doubt. And, and Peter says, no, the transfiguration is proof. Jesus will come in power and glory to destroy the apostate temple and old covenant Israel to make way for the fullness of the new covenant. But for us, we can say that means Jesus' final coming, that Jesus will return bodily to this earth, bringing heaven with him. Jesus will return bodily to this earth in power and glory to resurrect all peoples, to judge everyone who's ever lived, and to bring in his final and glorious new creation, the new heavens and new earth, making heaven and earth one. The transfiguration guarantees all of that. In the end, we can be certain that all glory will belong to Jesus because he was glorified on that mountain. The transfiguration confirms all the promises of the future kingdom. Let the transfiguration quench your doubts. Peter points to the transfiguration for confirmation. And it's interesting that he points to the transfiguration rather than to the resurrection. Why, why not just point to the resurrection and say, that's the proof. That should end all your doubts. Well, because not even the resurrection body of Jesus, as the disciples saw it, revealed the final and ultimate glory of Jesus in the way the transfiguration did. I mean, in essence, the transfiguration reveals even more about Jesus' glory than the resurrection. The transfiguration, even in that sense, more than the resurrection, is the clearest picture we have of the final state of things. And so the transfiguration underscores this reliability and trustworthiness of all God's kingdom promises. The transfiguration is the clue we have, the biggest clue we've been given to what final reality will look like, what our final destiny really is. The light seen in Jesus on that mountain is the light that shined into the darkness in the beginning. And it's the light that will fill the whole cosmos in the end. That dazzling, radiant, uncreated light that is God Himself. That's the light that fills the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22. We will walk in that light and live in that light forever. The transfiguration shows you where we're all headed to this glorious light. Peter tells us that prophecy comes from God, not from human the human mind or human imagination, but rather prophecy comes as the Holy Spirit leads men to speak and to write. 
And Peter says the transfiguration confirms those prophecies. The transfiguration is proof. God is fulfilling His prophecies. God's will will be done. The transfiguration is a guarantee of glory for all of us, for all who are looking to Jesus. It's our guarantee. And then finally, one more thread here. One other way we see the transfiguration used in the New Testament. We didn't read this passage this morning, but it's a familiar one I trust. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the transfiguration as a model of Christian living and of Christian transformation. There in 2 Corinthians, Paul contrasts the veiled, fading glory of Moses' face in Exodus with the unveiled, unfading glory of Jesus' face. Moses' veil hid God's glory from Israel. And that's true. Israel cannot see God's glory in Moses or in the tabernacle or in the scriptures when they were read. They couldn't even look at the transitory, reflected glory of Moses' face. They were so afraid. But now, Paul says, by faith we can gaze steadily into the eternal, original glory of Jesus himself. And now we're put in the place of Moses... But without the veil over our faces, we can reflect the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, to one another and into the world. That's what Paul says. We reflect the glory to one another as we are being made like Christ in our suffering. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And think about how this connects with the event of the transfiguration itself. He says, we all with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed or transfigured, we could say, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're being transformed or transfigured so we can shine like Christ. So we can shine with His glory. This glory is our destiny. It's our hope. It's what we were made for to share in the glory of Christ to shine with the glory of Christ, to reflect the glory of Christ to one another, to mirror the glory of Christ out into the world around us. In Jesus, we see God's glory face to face. And there's nothing else like it. Nothing comes close. And as we seek to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and sacrifice like Jesus and serve like Jesus, Others will come to see His glory in our faces as well. They will see the Lord's shining countenance in our countenances as well. We can be the face of God, the face of Jesus to one another. And in this way, the light of Christ can be unveiled. The light of Christ can grow to fill the whole earth. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You. We thank you for the law and the prophets and the way they witness to the glory of Christ. I ask that you would help us by faith to behold your glory in the face of Jesus. And as we do say, do so, may we shine as a transfigured humanity. May we shine with the glory of Christ himself. May we move from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory as Christ's character and Christ's image are inscribed into our hearts. Father, this is our hope that ultimately we will become completely like Him because we will see Him as He is when He is revealed in all His glory at the last day. That glory that we will shine with then 
May it shine through us. May it shine through our faces even now. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.